more companies are learning that hosting an app in the cloud doesn't mean you can just forget about infrastructure design. If you want that application rocket to stay in the air, you've got to design for failure, for resiliency, and only then do you make it to orbit. Our Datanauts discussion today is with a Microsoft cloud architect who's going to share some design insights for hosting apps on Azure. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I'm Ethan Banks at DC Banks, and with me is the intrepid Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who has never taken a single figurine in his Star Trek collection out of their bubble packs. Joining us today is Tom Vachon. Tom Vachon, would you introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience? Hi, everyone. Uh, so as Ethan said, I'm Tom Vachon. I'm a cloud solutions architect at Microsoft. And just because I work at Microsoft, I am not necessarily representing Microsoft and all opinions here are my own. Yeah. And just so we're very clear, right, you are not representing Microsoft. What you're saying is is your take. This is not a sponsored show. This is just us who happen to know you, who happens to work for Microsoft and is willing to share some of your knowledge about Azure. Correct. It's a lot of disclaimers there. I love it. I think we should just start all shows with this. Many That's, right. That's right. <laughs> so, Tom, let's kick off with some level setting. We're talking about application resilience today. Uh, what that means to me is that an application remains available even when some infrastructure that that app runs on has failed. There's a problem of some kind. Does that sound about right to you? Is there more nuance you want to introduce to that definition? Sure. At a basic level, that makes perfect sense. I Application resilience is really comprised of availability, which is your app working when your end users want it, durability, which is your data being persisted to storage or available, and recoverability is being able to recover or survive, rebuild after an outage. And frankly, infrastructure, you know, it will fail and it will happen at rates that you didn't expect in your on-premises data center because you've massively overbuilt your kit. You're not running at 99% capacity on every single piece of equipment you have because you don't need to run at that to make your OpEx and CapEx match. And you didn't build masterly distributed multi-tenant systems because you were a single tenant. Right. So in that setting, you just actually hit on something that's interesting when we talk about application resilience in the cloud. In our on-premises data center, we would see something running at a very high CPU or even... 50% CPU be going, ah, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I got enough capacity. Whereas in the cloud, you actually want to crank it up because you're, you're paying for all of that CPU that's that you have provisioned in your instances. Yeah, I mean, it's not just you that wants to crank it up. It's also the cloud provider when you think about it. An idle core on a server that the cloud providers purchased is lost revenue. Yeah, because they're not, if it's just sitting there idle, they're not billing anybody for it because they're billing by use. Uh, what has been... Uh, provisioned and assigned to someone. And if it's sitting there unused, then right, that's capacity that they aren't making any money on. I gotcha. Yeah. And I, I would feel terrified on premises to get a 50% CPU level set because that just feels weird in a VM. But in the cloud, it's kind of normal. Okay. So just application resilience as a definition, then it's just making that work, making it uh, be uh, available at all times. And you were kind of drawing a line there between resilience and disaster recovery, which I think could be lumped under the maybe the big umbrella of resilience, but it's really kind of a different topic. It's more about you know, getting back online when something bad has happened, as opposed to that application being resilient, you know, surviving um, you know, a smaller level failure. Is that a line you're trying to draw there? Yeah. I mean, resilience is 
not just in the design of the architecture, it's also in the design of the application. And I think that's really important. If you uh, put up a old legacy application, you're going to have different design patterns you need to follow. But in terms of a large outage, yeah, that, that's a separate line. And frankly, regardless of your cloud provider, a really hard one to solve for. Well, I think that also points out to some concerns that I've had working with folks who just sort of think that there's this magical panacea and that once they throw an application into public cloud, regardless of vendor, that it's now auto-magically redundant, resilient, and just don't worry about the design, just put it in there, magic happens. I mean, can you point out maybe some flaws in that kind of thinking? I think we're going to talk about this a little later for sure, but there are some providers where you get some extra levels of durability right out of the gate. Uh, Microsoft is kind of lives in that land because they focus towards the enterprises. And then there are other providers that if you fail over between their availability zones, you're going to have a different IP. You're going to lose all your storage. So there's some very interesting caveats depending on where you decide to go with your cloud workload in the more legacy scenario. I want to dig into the finances for a minute here, because if we go back to legacy architecture where I own it all, I've got a couple of data centers and I'm designing application resilience and capacity, doing my capacity planning in that way, we were mentioning earlier that we we tend to over-provision because that's where we're comfortable and it doesn't cost us any more to have, uh, other than the CapEx acquisition, it doesn't cost us any more to have more memory or more CPU available. It's there and... We want to build for that worst case scenario, that that peak load uh, scenario. But that thinking in the cloud wouldn't make a lot of sense as I'm thinking about application resilience here. I actually don't want to buy the hugest instance I might need. I'd rather buy a bunch of smaller instances and then scale out. Uh, that would be probably be cheaper for me, be smarter for me. Uh, is that you know how how do I think about application resilience and and cost and not over-provisioning while still having a, a viable, resilient solution and uh, don't end up with that super scary cloud build that we hear about a lot. Sure. So I mean, let, let's take this back to thinking about on-premises because that's a common denominator here. Um, and one of the things you have to think about is how much did each nine of availability cost you? I'm going to argue it's a lot more than you think because you're not including the people to run the data center. You're not including the power, the cooling, all of those extra things that you already get rolled in with your cloud uh, resources. At that same point, you know it's it's a bit different in the cloud to get that resilience when you're talking about cost, but the overall theme it's the same. You you, you don't need fault tolerance, HA, two end resources, two end networks, two end backups. You don't need all of that, but you do need two end copies of your app. You do need two end copies of each small amount of storage provision for each app. So I would say that getting resilience in the cloud under regardless of the model, obviously it's OpEx, is a very linear and projectable resource where on-premises you sunk a lot of money, which you may or may not ever recover because you're not necessarily ever going to have the outage that you think you will. So ultimately, I say you can value engineer your application resilience in both on-premises and the cloud, but there's only a certain tolerance to failure that you should be allowed to have. And it's kind of linear in the cloud on-premises. It's a much bigger bell curve. I mean, I think there's some assumptions here about the application itself and how that application is architected and its ability to run effectively in the cloud. Maybe we, there's a conversation here to have about cloud native versus not monolithic applications that have been you know, put up in the cloud. But I would actually challenge that assumption. So even a monolithic application in the cloud that's not necessarily cloud native, the 
tolerance to have a disaster recovery or a copy in another region is still linear, at least in Azure, because mm. uh, things like Azure Site Recovery, the RA Geos consistency levels for your storage, all of those things are incremental costs, not massive overheads. And frankly, Microsoft provides quite a bit of that for free. I got you. So you're making the point that you're sizing instances appropriately for the app that you're running when you need to scale up because that's what the it's not a cloud native app. That's what you need to do. And again, you're multiplying that times, you know, as you said, 2N versus uh, a different kind of an app that I think of as more cloud friendly and more cost optimized because you can run a lot of little small instances and then scale them out elastically as you need them and then uh, retire them when you don't need them anymore on the fly. You're saying I can still have a reasonable cost model in either model. Yeah, I mean, one of them is... Uh, more of a flat model, obviously, when you're just replicating data to another region, that's pretty flat. The other one's a little bit spikier, but ultimately, when you look over a one-year period, they're probably going to average out. Hmm. What about the considerations around the different types of consumption within the cloud? I think so far, we've definitely covered quite a bit of infrastructure as a service. You know, I want to build out virtual machines and consume storage and all that kind of jazz, which I think people naturally gravitate towards. But how does resilience change when we kind of up-level from that layer to platform as a service or even functions as a service when we're consuming public cloud? Sure. So the higher levels of abstraction do cost a little bit more. And because they cost more, they come with more resilience out of the box. When you're talking functions as a service, you're running a piece of code. It doesn't really matter where you're running it. It'll run, and then it runs on whatever piece of hardware is available. Uh, when you're talking PaaS, there's really kind of two offerings, at least in Microsoft. You can run the app service, which is a multi-tenant, very, very durable, very scalable offering. Or you can run app service environments, which, frankly, my stock would love if you want to run those because they're really expensive. But they give you the dedicated tenancy and all the nice features. They're just not quite as flexible um, because they're provisioned inside your own virtual network. So really what it comes down to is when you're looking at you know SaaS, like if you want to run a Salesforce, you don't back up your data every five minutes. You pay to have someone do that. Likely you're paying Salesforce. If you're using a PaaS, you're backing up your data and using functions service, you're backing up your data, but you're not really caring about the underlying infrastructure as much because you're paying someone else to care about that for you. You're just providing metrics in PaaS on the amount of instances you want based on a certain criteria, so generally CPU or maybe a queue if you're using queues and FAS, all you're doing is essentially running it more because you're just invoking it more. And it just kind of scales naturally. So, so on the serverless, on the FAS stuff, I'm running it against the cloud and, and I don't have to think about resilience in that sense because the nature inherent in that kind of a service is that Azure's going to be resilient for me. There's always going to be something that answers when I make the call. Is that fair to say for FAS? There should always be something there. Now, obviously, we can't guarantee that. That's why uh, we have service-level availability agreements. But there should be something there. And and that's in the consumption model. And you know, that we're not the only cloud that does it. AWS has Lambda. And Lambda just kind of is always available. As long as the underlying infrastructure is okay, that's hosting the service as a whole, it'll be there. Yeah, I remember setting up uh, largely just redundant networks and things like that, but I never have to worry about the function. You don't even get exposed to that layer, I'll say, of you know making sure it's up and running. That's just default. 
Uh, it's definitely more about making sure that the networks within the region uh, have redundancy and the security gateway has redundancy, things like that. Uh, so I, I definitely, I agree with that statement. Yeah, I mean, your, your ingress path is definitely the most important. And frankly, when you look at app service, obviously one of our flagship offerings, it could run a function app all on its own. You don't have to run it via an API gateway if you don't want to. So we have multiple different running models for multiple different use cases. and. App service kind of fits several of them, but not necessarily everyone you want to do. So for on-premises stuff, uh, Tom, there's a very common active-active model that people are used to. They know what that means. Active-passive uh, is another one that's out there. A couple of different data centers, and uh, people know what we mean very often when we say active-active or active-passive designs. Let's, let's talk about active-active for a moment in, in the cloud. Now, does it make sense to have... Uh, active, active, uh, is there a cost concern there? Or is that like thinking that you can't take from the premises model and map into the cloud? That's like lift and shift thinking that's wrong. And should I be thinking in a different way to provide um, what we would think of as an active, active application services from the legacy on-premises days to be to offer resiliency in my application? Yeah, I mean, active-active is really, like you said, an on-premises type of term. When you're in the cloud, it's more about fault tolerance than being active-active. You can have multiple copies of the application if your application is designed to work that way and doesn't hold state on a single machine. Like, that that will all work, but I don't necessarily think the word active-active in the cloud makes much mm. sense within the concept of a region. Now, if you're talking across multiple regions, that's when you start talking about active-active. Because then you're dealing with some latency and some special code that you want to, you know, deal with write delays to the database and all that. Like that's where I see active active. Because you've actually got a infrastructure reason where you would still need to be running multiple copies because you're trying to service people geographically in the most timely way possible. That that scenario? Yeah, either geographically, which there are other offerings, obviously Azure Front Door, Azure CDN, all of those things help the geographic disparity. But there's also a case where you need to literally not have a downtime if there's a regional failure, and they happen. I, it's a fact of life in the cloud that things will happen, and generally they're the network. So, Tom, we were mentioning active-active kind of being old-school uh, thinking. We talked about uh, monolithic apps being you know, old-school thinking, but it is, it, it is kind of hard sometimes to translate what I do when I'm building a data center of my own versus leveraging cloud services. So let's go back to that old school monolithic application again. If I want to move that thing into the cloud, am I kind of limited in what my resilience design options are? You know, actually, I think it's less limiting than people think it is. For instance, I helped migrate one of these applications. It was a fat client application, single tenant database, runs completely proprietary software. Now you think you could never get that working in the cloud. Now, but there are extra value added services. In this case, I was migrating to AWS at the time where I was working and we used the AWS's AppStream service, which is their application delivery service. That created a massive amount of uh, resiliency that they never had on premises before because they had dedicated workstations at each place to run this one fat client. So. It's surprising that some of those monolithic apps that you think will never work in the cloud, there are ways to make them work better and frankly get lower RPOs and lower RTOs way faster than I think they ever would have had on premises. I 
think it's important as we have this discussion to not confuse you know, application level resiliency, you know, making sure the application's online, servicing requests, things of that nature from disaster recovery needs. You know, the idea of a disaster, it can cover a lot of situations like corruption in the database or malicious actors tearing down your application like wolves on unsuspecting lambs. And uh, that can span wider than a set of use cases that just replication or application level resiliency can handle alone. What's on your mind, Ethan? I know it's been said before, it's not an original thought, but when you are leveraging cloud to deploy infrastructure or using platform as a service, you gotta unlearn, you gotta relearn how to leverage that resource. It's different in cloud than it is on premises. And so to achieve the same business goal, that of application availability, you got to do some homework. You can't just redo what you did on premises and expect to get an ideal result. Well, now that we've level set a bit on, I guess, resiliency and redundancy and just making a design that fits into public cloud as we learned on the on-prem environment, let's talk about changes that have occurred in the Azure world. And I know there's been some announcements, Tom, around changes with availability as it regards you know, the Azure availability zones and whatnot. Can you peer into that world a bit for us? Sure. So Azure historically has been one or two data centers per region. And um, we gave you some controls, which allowed you to, you know, try to keep your workloads not necessarily right next to each other. AWS, however, had been doing availability zones since the beginning, and it was a natural place for Azure to look. So availability zones in Azure, they are not in every region. I believe most new regions will come out with them, but I can't necessarily promise that. So availability zones in Azure are not in the same area. Uh, They are separated geographically. They have different power, different networking. They're not in the same floodplain. They're not in the same building. So if one catches fire, it won't catch the other on fire. So they're within the same region, however. So they give you really low latency, and they allow you to have that application that can't quite work with another region have some level of durability that extends beyond the single rack. Because uh, historically, you know, racks were the kind of boundary for um, Azure, and they kind of just you were in a, if you wanted to be in a different, you know, uh, blast radius, you were just in a different rack for the most part. You weren't in a different data center. So it gives you that little extra durability with really low latency. In fact, is the 99.99% SLA we offer. Hmm, gotcha. So scaling out those regions so that you have multiple data centers to choose from and really going from rack and road level redundancy to full on data center level redundancy. Yeah, and also one of the nice things that we've done when we deploy that is, unlike AWS, the IP address, and coming from an AWS land, the IP address is not tied to any single availability zone. It floats across all of them. That is one of those big headaches with those old monolithic apps that if you had to stop and start it, it's going to have a whole new IP if it's in a different different availability zone. That's just not there. And those are one of the things that I'm just like... I kind of wish the other guys did that too. You you are familiar with AWS and resilience designs. Why don't you dig into some of the differences between Azure and AWS uh, resilience options? First off, uh, I'm relatively new to Microsoft and it's amazing how transitive those properties really are. When you're talking public cloud, things like availability zones, they kind of all have the same definition now. And that's really useful being able to look at a multi-cloud strategy. You know, when you're looking at AWS, AWS tries to keep you within the same data center unless you set another availability zone. And a region is really that boundary. There's really no easy replication of data from one region to another region. 
with Azure, we kind of do the opposite. We try to put your workloads together as much as possible because when you deploy a cluster, we assume that's what you want to do. You want to have low latency. But there are ways for us to provide anti-affinity within a single availability zone or cross-availability zones. And that's something called an availability set. In AWS, the only way to set affinity is actually affinity, not anti-affinity. And that's a placement group. So there's no way to guarantee that workload A and workload B are not on the same server in AWS unless you're using availability zones. You said anti-affinity there, which is that that's when I specifically want to keep components apart for resiliency reasons? Correct. So you want to keep them apart for either what Azure calls availability sets. And those are controllable in two different domains. So those are availability sets and they give two different dimensions of protection. One is the fault domain. And the fault domain is really, you know, you're on the same switch. Think of it like that. So if you choose an availability set with a fault domain of one, everything could be on the same switch. That's a reasonable amalgamation or metaphor, whatever you want to call it, for what it does. There's also a second dimension called the update domain. The update domain is where we update our underlying software. So if you choose an update domain of one, everything could get rebooted at the same time if we have to do a major platform update. But if you choose an update domain of two and a fault domain of two, you're on those two proverbial switches and you're in two different software update cycles. Okay. So that's something I hadn't thought about then. So it is possible, depending on where you've deployed your applications, for the underlying Azure infrastructure to, because it's being updated, to get rebooted. But but you can design around that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... It's no secret. It's right in our docs. Azure runs on a modified version of Hyper-V. It's based roughly off the Windows 2012 R2 era. So yeah, I mean, we're doing updates. AWS has its Zen and KVM at this point. So hopefully as more KVM, aka Nitro-based um, offerings come out, they will have a little bit better updates than they did in the past. The Zen ones are a little bit painful, frankly. Hmm. Yeah, I can um, recall times where uh, there was a notice going out, like we're going to have to reboot because of some sort of kind of kernel or hypervisor layer update. And I just remember that being painful. I've never even thought about exposing update zones or update regions to someone. That's interesting. Is is I guess, can we dig into that? Is there a reason you would just choose one? I guess if you just really don't care if everything reboots at the same time. Sure. Um, yeah, there is a reason. I mean, whenever you're deploying a VM, I always deploy it with an update, uh, with an availability set, because you can't go back and retroactively apply one. Mm, so okay. when you apply a, an availability set, you also deploy it into a resource group, which is a very important concept in Azure. Resource groups are a grouping of like things. So if you're deploying web servers for app A, they should be in the same resource group. Some people go a little bit further and they deploy all the servers for app A into a resource group. I wouldn't do it. That's just my personal opinion. So when you deploy all those web servers into this resource group, you also deploy it with an availability set. You can add individual servers or scale sets into that later. So that's always the one of those fundamental building blocks that everyone should just have in their template. Additionally, there's one other thing that's kind of unique to Azure, which is called the linked region or the paired region. So a paired region is a geographically dispersed by many, many hundreds of miles location, which provides you the durability of not just geographic isolation, but also gives you another software update or fault domain. So when you deploy to a paired region, we guarantee that we will never update those both at the same exact time. So if you did deploy with an availability set with an update domain of one, 
did in two different regions. Now you have two. It's not something I would do. I would definitely deploy with more update domains, but it's one of those things that gives you a little extra availability and durability and things like the storage accounts. They can replicate region to region and give, even giving read access in the secondary region. Okay, there's a lot here. So, uh, so, so let's let's back up and uh, you know, and, and and then reexamine some of this. So, so one question, Tom. A lot of the terms are as we're listening to them on a podcast have similar terms and similar functions, and it's hard to keep them all straight. Is Azure documentation pretty clear on you know? So when I need to go back and review all of this and understand the difference between an availability set and availability zone and a paired region, I've got documents I can refer to that are going to help explain all of that to me. Actually, we have some really good documentation on that. I won't say that all of our documentation is excellent, but this, primo. There are architecture checklists for availability, resiliency, and also resiliency per service, because that's different when you're talking higher order services. And I provide those links, and I think we should have those in the show notes. So service like PaaS, uh, platform as a service kind of things you mean being different from IaaS? Not just that. Uh, when you're talking about Cosmos DB, what is the resiliency patterns you want to deploy for a massively distributed NoSQL database? Or SQL PaaS, which is a PaaS, but there are other options you can do, and they're not they're unique to that specific offering. Same with app service. There are some extra things you want to take into consideration. So that resiliency per service really dives deep into those. Got it. I'm trying to build X. I need to make sure it stays up. How should I do it? So I've got guide guide docs that are going to walk me through the things that I need to be considering and the boxes that I should be checking to make sure that that particular service I'm standing up is going to be resilient. Absolutely. And I really hope you're not checking boxes and you're doing it in code, but absolutely. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. Is there a best practice that you would recommend to know when I should use an availability set, a zone, a paired region, et cetera? It, or, or is it every case is somewhat unique depending on my goals and I got to kind of mix and match depending on what I'm trying to get done? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd imagine every case is slightly unique. And there's there's one, some basic building blocks I will always do. I will always deploy a managed disk. Managed disks are probably about a year or so old, maybe a little bit more, but they provide much better scalability, IOPS, I know you've had some uh, principal architects on before, and they talked about that ultra SSD offering. Mm -hmm. That's only on managed disk. Uh, if you're using one of the traditional methods, you're using a storage account, and there's a there's more latency in there because you're essentially addressing a VHD over IP instead of having it presented more natively to the hypervisor. Mm. As I said earlier, always deploy an availability set. You can't do it before. You can't do it after mm. the fact. So always do it before. And then availability zones, I mean, if you're going to have multiple copies and you can go to a region that's geographically acceptable to not just you, but also any regulatory requirements you have, that's great. Paired regions, that's where things get a little bit more uh, difficult. I mean, how much do you want to spend for each nine? Essentially is what it comes down to. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that because I, on the assumption that none of this is free... There is a cost component I'm going to pay for this level of higher resiliency. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, managed disks, that's just a table stakes for us now. Availability sets, they're metadata. That doesn't matter to us. But once you get to availability zones, you have to think about data transfer. Once you get to paired regions, you really have to think about uh, cross-regional data transfer, uh, especially depending how many regions you want to deploy on. And there's some very fun network tricks you can do to work around that. But Ultimately, 
the more resiliency you add, the more it costs, but the more geographic resiliency you add is really where it starts adding up. Hmm. Availability sets you highlighted as an example of something that if you're going to use it, you got to use it up front because you can't retroactively add it. Is that true for these other elements we've been talking about, availability zones and paired regions? Or, or is that something I could grow into if my, my business needs changed? Yeah, you can grow into both of those. If you're thinking about doing availability zone, I would really highly recommend you look at virtual machine scale sets, which are like Amazon's auto scaling groups. They allow you to essentially just add more capacity and you could target to specific zones. We call our zones one, two, three. Um, Amazon has one, you know, one A, one B, one C, one D, one E, one F. And just like Amazon, just so everyone's aware, our availability zones are randomly assigned by each subscription. So my zone one in this one region is not necessarily your zone one in this one region. Ooh, I kind of like that. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. (laughs) Otherwise, everyone's going to deploy to zone one and zone one will be out of capacity. It's just a general cloud operation tenant. What about for people that hear all this and they're like, oh, I don't want to think that hard. My brain will wrinkle. You know, I just want to, you know, give me a solution. Let me stand up a workload and just know that it's always going to be available. Is that something that you get pressure on? Is there something like Azure App Service that can help me with this? Or, you know, I guess answer the hypothetical pundit who's like, I just want to deploy. Azure App Service is perfect for that type of customer. Out of the box, Azure App Service has a 99.95% SLA which is great. Um, That's better than what some people do on their own. If you're not deploying into an availability zone, you're pegged at 99.95 anyways. If you're deploying to multiple availability zones, you get that fourth nine. But really, how much is that nine worth? And when you're thinking about- A billion dollars. Now I need all the nines. And now all I can see is Dr. Evil in my head. (laughs) Yes. When you're looking at app service, it does more things. It, It costs a little bit more money, don't get me wrong. But you can do deployment slots where a deployment slot allows you to deploy version one and then concurrently deploy version two. And when version two passes all its checks, it can auto swap to version one. And if something goes wrong, it can revert to last known good slot. So there's a lot of extra stuff around there. You can FTP to it and deploy your code. You can use web deploy for all those uh, Windows IAS lovers. And you could do Git. It integrates with Azure DevOps really well. Those extra value adds are really where it starts shining. And because you're on a multi-tenant system where you can take leverage of all the other people's desires to never go down unless you're on an application service environment, which then again, my stock would love you for, it would be one of those things that you're already getting the best Microsoft has to offer. And we really don't want multi multiple customers to go down at once. So we pretty well designed that. And when you think you're running on one server, trust me, it's not on one server. When you're running an application service uh, on app service, you're running your apps pretty much exploded in ways you would not anticipate, but really adds that extra durability and scalability. Well, Tom, I want to ask a question about just outages generically. I mean, when I'm deploying to cloud, I'm kind of anticipating that it's going to be pretty resilient, but yet... Uh, there's Azure outages and there's AWS outages and the status pages that we can monitor. Um, what would you say to folks who argue that, uh, oh, AWS is just, you know, better. They have fewer outages. Azure has more outages. Is that a fair perception? Um, should, should outage reports like that color people's thinking about how they choose a cloud provider for their service? What are your, what's your take on that? Sure. So again, legally, I, these are my own opinions, not one of Microsoft. However, 
I would actually say that AWS has probably more outages than people realize. I've been using AWS since 2008. I can tell you the amount of brownouts that go unreported in the status page is staggering. Azure kind of does the opposite. They seem to over-communicate in this area. So there's really that balance of it almost seems like it's always going down versus it's never going down. But when you remember that S3 had that outage, AWS couldn't even update their status page. So it's one of those chicken and eggs. Do you want to under-communicate or over-communicate? Frankly, I'd rather have the cloud that over-communicates than under-communicates. Oh, I want to investigate that Azure app service. That sounded really interesting because there are those moments when you just feel like, I just got something I got to throw up there. And it's important to me that it lives and it survives outages, but I don't want to have to think about it too hard. So app service was pretty interesting. Uh, even if it does cost a little bit more, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. And I'm going to dig in. What, uh, what grabbed your attention, Chris? I like the different, you know, sets and zones and regions and all these different terms that uh, kind of feel like the different levels of an on-premises architecture that you'd normally have to consider, but they're kind of distilled down to this pyramid of infrastructure uh, that are displayed into chunks for a logical design. I, I actually kind of like that. Uh, one benefit is rather than having to, I don't know, pick specific vendors for your storage, compute, and all that kind of jazz, you really just determine what's my availability requirements and then design your, you know, quote-unquote pyramid to meet those needs. Okay, so we've been getting into the different kind of services we can take advantage of, Tom, if I'm using, if I'm trying to really make a resilient application on Azure. Now I want to get into some of the more, more, the more details, some nuts and bolts. So for example, going back to my legacy on-premises world, one of the key things I really think a lot about is DNS. That's critical to get that right when you're building resilient apps. Do I have to worry about DNS for cloud-hosted application resilience? There's some big principles I should be aware of. Should I be thinking about multiple DNS providers? Uh, or is it different because, again, it's cloud and not legacy old-school way of doing things? All right. Well, we'll start off by addressing the giant pink elephant in the room. And that was the recent um, Azure outage uh, where DNS was involved. So certain parts of our services relied on third-party DNS. And Microsoft has publicly committed to resolving those parts. But when you think about that, AWS had the same problem. Please don't think it's just Azure. AWS was using Dyn. Dyn had a denial of service, and all of the US East 1 endpoints went down because that was one of their first regions. It was still using the legacy DNS system. So the Azure DNS service is actually has 100% uptime since it's been deployed. Those are the type of services that are really important for cloud providers to work. I would definitely leverage towards using the service that the cloud provider provides, not only because they're generally very, very durable, but also because they give you programmatic interfaces to updating those records. So, so like on AWS, you're talking about Route 53, and is there a special name for it on Azure? Azure DNS. Okay. There's Azure DNS and there's Azure Traffic Manager, which kind of complements. Uh, that's a GSLB offering. Mm -hmm. So I would say... Some of the more important things are, I would put it in the cloud provider, but I would always have a secondary master someplace. I would always have two name servers. And frankly, make sure your TLD is hosted someplace. So if you know the loving uh, contoso.com is hosted on just one cloud provider, and there was a minor outage there, and you were across two cloud providers or across two regions, you're going to have a problem. So 
think about that top level domain and as the keys to the kingdom, because no glue records will work any other way. So I'm getting a couple of things here, which sound like best practices, but one, leverage the cloud's DNS provider, because I can programmatically update that. And that matters. That's important, especially with ephemeral infrastructure. And then two, I should have more than one, have a copy of that zone uh, somewhere else, which started coming up on people's radars with the big dying outage and people realizing that, oops, I've only got my domain parked in one place. Now that this provider is down, no one can get to my stuff anymore, no matter how resilient the application might have been otherwise designed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my personal domain is on at least two providers at all times. Whether it's that visible or not is a, a different story. So I follow that practice just that when I'm working with the cloud, I'm creating subdomains off the main domain. So whatever I have to replicate out to a third party that cannot go down, that's a very small set of records because they generally charge by the record or uh, set. It's just how they end up working. Do the considerations around security models change when I start designing resilient apps for the cloud? Because, you know, obviously I don't want to lose control of the environment if something bad happens. So are there any special design considerations that are unique to cloud around, you know, tracking keys and recovery accounts and things of that nature? Yeah, of course. So the clouds are all based on identity. And there's really two, maybe three types of identity. But the main ones are user identities and machine identities. Machine identities, I would argue, are the best served by letting the cloud provider manage them. In Azure, that's Azure um, um, AD service principles, or even better, the managed service identities. Managed service identities essentially allow the server to automatically assume a identity as it's spun up. Then when it goes away, it's gone. It's just for the lifetime of that one instance or all those instances that are using it. And in AWS, that's, uh, you know, an... I, an instance role. So very similar. I would never embed a key into code. It's a terrible idea. If you have to do it, put it into like a key vault, but really try not to do that whatsoever. What about considerations for recovery accounts? And, and I'm also thinking about two-factor because everyone wants me to do multi-factor, two-factor, and frankly, I, I'm, I agree with that mentality. Sure. Uh, so recovery accounts, they're actually less important than Azure in Azure than AWS. AWS, every single account has its own identity. Yeah, there's this thing called organizations, but it can't actually override the root user. So those are really important things to not lose. And in Azure, Microsoft has the Azure Active Directory. We are an identity company. We are a security company. You have one identity in Azure. You always have one identity in Azure. That one identity can be used across many, many subscriptions, even multiple tenants if configured properly. So there's really no recovery account required because there's you always will have that login. Now, if someone forgot that, there are multiple tiers all the way up to what is known as the enterprise administrator who can add and remove people to any subscription. So those are really good backups. I'd rather have a backup that is a person than a backup that is a password written down and stored in a key vault. Now, 2FA is really important. I've lived the 2FA hell, which was battery-backed MFAs. And they keep dying and they're terrible. AWS now supports U2F tokens, also you know, YubiKeys. That helps. Um, you never lose the battery, which is awesome because getting that, that 2FA removed is a eh, four-ish month process involving lawyers and notaries. And it's just ugly. But in Azure, I, we kind of tried to get away from that. As long as you're on an Azure AD P1 license, you can have our MFA um, for everybody. And you can actually do conditional access, which I think is even more important than just MFA itself. 
conditional access and AD terms is essentially you're in this group, you're coming from this location, which means you must MFA, or you're not coming from this location, which is more important. And, you know, we have these user risk sign-ins that are coming out and, or they're in preview now. And so you can see, you know, what this person normally sends in from Massachusetts. And now all of a sudden they're sending in from China. Something's wrong here. And those users will get flagged pretty quickly. So you can set a conditional access policy that says, if you are a user who gets high risk flagged through the artificial intelligence that Microsoft has put into their security platform, that they have to MFA. And maybe they have to do two things. And those sort of things are really powerful. I, I, I think just standard MFA nowadays is table stakes for most people. It's enriching that with additional information. All right, so we've got some nuts and bolts behind us, some some big ideas that are helping us with our uh, resiliency design. But I just had this other thought pop into my head, Tom. What about, I mean, how do I know how my cloud environment is actually doing? What What is my, my window into the state of the cloud that my applications are uh, running on. So let's start with this. How do I know that something's failed up there? Sure. So there's four real significant parts to help here. Azure Advisor, Azure Monitor, Azure Security Center, and Azure Log Monitor. And I'm sure Chris is silently nodding his head saying, that sounds a lot like operational management suite. Uh, because essentially it is. Uh, we, we broke them apart and we started combining them together. And ultimately, those four things will give you all you need. Azure Monitor is really the best utility to see if there's a failure kind of helps avoid the loving pet situation that you don't want to have, but you're going to have anyways. So Azure Monitor will tell you that this specific service is having an issue, or more specifically, this one resource is having an issue. And there are programs within Microsoft that can give you even further advanced notice. You have to have, you know, premier level support to get access to those, I'm sure, because we love our support. But even so, you're, you're going to get access, you're going to get some pretty detail information. What you can do with the Azure monitors, you can create an event. So when that event fires, you can say, send an email. Eh, emails aren't really that useful. How about we create some self-healing infrastructure and we run an Azure automation playbook. That playbook could relaunch the server. It could spin up a secondary copy. It could fail over traffic manager. All of those things are available. That's really powerful once you start understanding that failure is notified, not just happen. You mentioned several different tools and made the argument that within those tools, you've got what you need to monitor your Azure cloud environment. All right. How do I access those tools and, and am I buying them separately or are they just part of what I get when I am an Azure customer? Sure. So Azure Advisor, totally included. It tells you how best to optimize your cloud, some configurations that may be wrong. Well, you know, it's, it's the more governance focused. Azure Monitor is basically events. So you have to pay for, you know, the number of events you ingest or the things you do, but, you know, relatively small money. Security Center has two tiers. The standard tier does a lot of things. It'll tell you, you know, this disk is not encrypted by your own custom encryption key. But once you get to the more advanced tiers, it does a whole lot of correlation, AI, DDoS, you know, all of those major enterprise security things. And then Log Monitor, it is what most people think of Splunk, basically and send in a whole bunch of data, query it kind of creatively, and get out a whole bunch of data. Totally powerful, amazing tool, but you have to pay for what you use. Now, if I leverage those tools, do I get to a point where I can easily understand not just that I have a failure, but what that failure is affecting? Yeah, I mean, uh, Azure monitors, really, those service health alerts are going to be that thing. 
They can be as broad as Azure Status, which is widespread and impact in locations. And that's really on the status page, but it's also represented in your personal service health page. Service health can also deal with sub-regional and not overall impacting things like SQL database is having a problem versus all compute within this region. And then you can go down one more to resource health, which is defined in both scope and impact. So your SQL database is having an issue instead of all SQL databases. Hmm. What about third-party tools? So I've talked to a couple of companies that uh, deal with a complex application dependency mapping and figuring out where in a complex application, something's really broken, including cloud infrastructure. So Lightstep is one of those companies. Instana is another company. I don't know how well they work with AWS versus Azure. I'm not going to get into feature sets there. Uh, there's another company, Kentic. They do. Um, they can read flow logs coming out of, I know AWS and I believe Azure as well, and build uh, flow dependencies that show you exactly which components of an app are talking to which other ones and how much traffic's going back through and so on. So if I have my own infrastructure, my own monitoring infrastructure like that, uh, and I'm you know, so I because I, I prefer those tools or want to use those tools, is there is there gotchas I need to be concerned about within Azure things services I need to turn on to be able to leverage those tools? No, I mean most of those tools are going to inherit certain things, and I mean Azure provides these tools too, like Azure Performance Managers, you know, uh, kind of in that uh, Lightstep S area, you know, monitor and log analytics help. But one thing to remember about Azure and Microsoft in general is we have a very, very, very rich partner ecosystem with ISVs, uh, general partners. And we really have embraced that. Like, If we don't do something well, you will absolutely believe that we have partners who can do it just as good, if not better than us. One great example is uh, Databricks. We recently invested in Databricks. Databricks is an awesome solution. I have no reason to not use it. And frankly, we've partnered up with them. And it's those sort of partnerships that really kind of push that forward. And I also want to highlight Azure Migrate. Um, It's a free solution that Azure offers. It helps with that dependency mapping, flow mapping, but it's not necessarily as detailed as some of the other offerings. So I always try to see what the free ones do first that the cloud providers offer. And then from there, go deeper. And frankly, some easy flow dependency mappings and monitoring, they don't need all the fancy tools. So you're going to end up saving some money. Mm. That's kind of why I always try the free stuff first. And then I can deep dive on the problem childs with the more expensive stuff if I need to. (laughs) Yeah, that's a fair point because Lightstep and Stana, Kentec, I mentioned, they help you when you've got a really complicated application, especially if it's been broken out into microservices and you've got now lots of different apps making API, micro apps making API calls one to another, and you're really trying to deal with a a complicated transaction. But the reality is exactly what you said. A lot of it really isn't that complicated. And so do you need to go to that level of monitoring and mapping to to figure out a problem? Yeah. And I I would argue most of those will occur during a migration phase. Um, Once you're running steady state in the cloud, you have a lot of metadata to understand what talks to what. You also have the ability to run Network Watcher or Azure Virtual Tap. All those things will help you get more data. Um, But I think you'll find those tools are more common, at least uh, the dependency mapping in the migration phase, because you have generally thousands and thousands of lines of ACL on a terrible Cisco router that was never meant to do this. And that's what you're doing on anyways. 
Well, I think it's all great that we talk about resiliency and whatnot, but you know, you got to test these things to make sure they're actually working. Tom, any special considerations in the world of public cloud as it revolves around application resiliency testing that you'd want to bring up for the, the audience? Sure. Yeah. I mean, external brownout checks are really important. Um, I don't necessarily check the front door of my application. I check each front door from running in multi-regions or multi-availability zones if I have the architecture to do that. Uh, checkpointing your data is really important um, because that is very important to failing over. If you don't have a checkpoint, where are you going to fail over to? Uh, certain things like uh, taking down your source control management system and then trying to fail over, see if it works. I would guess that you probably put in the wrong in the same region and it won't. And finally, a very fun thing that's very public cloud, SaaS vendors. If you're using a SaaS vendor who you know is running on your public cloud, you better find out which region they're running in. Previous experience, we had one SaaS vendor ran a very critical workload for my last company. S3 had that outage. SaaS vendor went down, we went down, everyone blamed each other, ends up it was S3. So knowing where your vendors are and what they run on help uh, define that blast radius and your overall risk profile. Well, Tom, this has been a great discussion about application resilience on Azure. Another one of those things where certain assumptions are wrong, certain assumptions are right, kind of, and then there's the things you didn't even think about. So it's, again, it's a whole different world. This has been a fantastic discussion. I appreciate you taking the time. Now, for people who want to find out more information, is there a landing page or just a URL that you'd like to direct them to? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Azure Architecture Center is great in this area. And there's a lot of links on the Microsoft documentation that we'll make sure to put in the show notes um, around that resiliency and scalability. Great stuff. And then, Tom, what about you personally? If people want to follow you, ask you a question, are you on Twitter, you got a blog, anything like that you'd like to share? Sure. So I'm Tom Vashon on Twitter and stay classy internet on the internet. Stay classy, internet. And yeah, stay classy, internet. That is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan. That would be me at EC Banks on Twitter. My blog is EthanCBanks.com. All my technical stuff is up at PacketPushers.net. Chris is at Chris Wall on the Twitter, and his blog is WallNetwork.com. And for more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You will find us Data Knots talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full stack engineering. You get the idea. Anything about infrastructure engineering is what we're talking about. And until then, may your server lights blink, the cloud be ever in your favor, and your cables be cleanly managed. Sorry for one moment, my... <laughs> My Google account just signed me out because I uh, haven't signed in in a while. So just coming right back into the dock. At least you didn't delete your Google account last week. (laughs) 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 Moving on. Yeah. Okay. (laughs)